Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Hey, it's a good day to have a good day. It is a solo CJ here recording live from the Thunderdome. Producer Nancy was a little bit sleepy from all the work she's had to do for this podcast, but no worries. I'll put the team on my back. This one's for you, Nancy. So today we're shooting we're shooting a mail bag to head off this episode before we get to it with Brandon Deere from UiPath. Very exciting. Our first guest from a publicly traded company. We are so big time. All right, first question. What's the number one model every go-to-market leader should know inside and out to be dangerous with their finance and strategy counterparts? This one comes from Matt Crane, who writes an excellent Substack, Management Boston. Check it out. It's a great question because, so when I came over from the world of private equity to the operator side, I didn't really know what types of models I'd be building, but I was, you know, really dangerous inside of Excel. Like I could build a DCF from scratch, but that's not very useful to someone who's like trying to figure out moving from a perpetual license model to a subscription model. So I think the most helpful models to get your hands around would be, I'll give you two. The first one would be a marketing pipeline model. And this one's funny because it's usually built in reverse which throws people for a loop because you're working backwards towards how many registrations or MQLs you'll need based on the number of net new customers you want. And then you have to build in a lag depending on how long the sales cycle is for each segment. And so you're working backwards to basically gross up the top of the funnel. And once you get this one down, I'd call it a dark art because you can apply it um, in every annual planning cycle to help your CMO and become best friends with them to figure out what their targets are going to be. And what dovetails into that is the second model I'd recommend you learn how to build. And that's a sales capacity model. And that's figuring out how many butts and seats you need at any period to make sure that you're able to achieve that sales target. So you need enough feet on the street, butts and seats, I don't know why I'm I'm like uh, using like nursery rhymes here, but uh, it's true. You need enough butts and seats and quota out there in the world to cover whatever your board plan is and whatever your operating plan is. And it takes reps time to get up to speed. They can't just like, you know, sh- show up on the job and just be capable of, you know, taking down a million dollar quota. So learning how to ramp reps over time, whether that's in a linear fashion where, you know, they go from 10% to 15% to 20% over time, or if it's a uh, nonlinear ramped model like or curved model where, you know, they go up uh, at an increasing pace the longer that they're there to get up to 100% capacity. And this dovetails into a third model, which I wasn't planning on talking about, but This helps with your headcount model for the rest of the org because the sales capacity model is, in my opinion, the most important uh, operating like model or module that you have within your operating plan because it impacts the other resources you need around it. So each individual sales rep you can kind of think of as, you know, the atomic unit in which you build a pot around. And that'll include, you know, a BDR to pass some leads. It'll include a system engineer to help them with the technical parts of the sales It'll even be linked to the number of marketing people you need to drive the pipeline for that registration target that we all just talked about. So all linked together. Uh, So get out there and learn how to build a pipeline model and a sales capacity model. Oh, quick plug. I have both of those available as templates for paid users, readers, members of MostlyMetrics.com, a fantastic newsletter by yours truly. So 
Get it going. Second question. How do you convince early stage founders that having good financial and operational hygiene is super important? From Rushi Kazalawal. This is an excellent question. I would say, Rushi, your pitch deck isn't enough. And that should make you stop in your tracks. And what I mean by that is VCs will want dope on the table. It's like one of those drug busts where, you know, they film the result of it and there's a bunch of dope on the table to show, um, you know, what they came back with on their hunt. VCs want an export to take back with them uh, from their hunt of all your Salesforce data so they can build your own model. So that five-year forecast that you showed um, off of a, off of one 10K ARR deal is not enough. Ideally, you know, you have more than 10K in ARR. I mean, it all depends on when you're raising, but VCs like will use your pitch deck as the appetizer, but the entree they're going to build themselves. They're going to go back and take that data and build their own operating model to sanity check that what you gave them is actually achievable. And I've gone through this before. And at the time we were using a HubSpot CRM, which was like trying to wrangle a small child from the teeth of a tiger. And this goes into the second question here. This is the crux of the question. How to implement said operational hygiene? What processes pinpointing exactly how to deliver that would be good for founders in my experience uh, from Yao Martins. Excellent part two here. And that's choosing the right systems to capture the data from the beginning. So like I said, it's going to be pretty damn hard to give the VCs the data they want if you're not using a CRM where you can export. And I think it also lends a a certain level of credibility that the data coming from it isn't just like one of those FTX spreadsheets that they entered in, like, put a number over there, move a billion around. Like you want it to come from an actual system. You don't want it coming from just some spreadsheet that you save down to your desktop. Picking a CRM, maybe it's a HubSpot at the beginning, then it becomes a Salesforce, but like logging the actual sales that you're doing um, and also the pipeline opportunities. What I've found is VCs will all will go far enough to see how much you have in the pipeline over the next few quarters. And that goes into their model as well. So it's not just historical data you're capturing, but future looking data as well. And to Yao's question, um, I think it comes down to two angles. The first was the CRM piece that we just talked about. But the second is really this financial angle. And that's making sure you use a QuickBooks, uh, a Zero, or sponsor of the podcast when you're bigger. Use a NetSuite to capture expenses clearly and having clean data lineage across the org and historically. I've been at orgs where we tracked it like really poorly at first, and there were all these gaps all over the place. And you end up having to try to do this cleanup job that's semi-impossible to fill in the gaps. And you can avoid that at the beginning by setting up what I call um, a general ledger list, a GL list. That's that's fairly simple, but covers you know probably 100% of your expenses at first. This, in my opinion, is what I always start out as. I call it the most basic yet comprehensive list of expenses to include in your P&L. So the first one is going to be salary and benefits. Second one is going to be commissions for the sales people who you know are on a variable target. The next one is going to be contractors, which is a huge part of tech companies that people underestimate and can become a, a quick runaway expense. That's the flex labor c- capacity for specialized or project work. Or if you don't have full-time employees yet, and, you know, you're grinding it out uh, with a bunch of contractors. Next one is professional services. So lawyers, bookkeepers, tax accountants, rent. You can allocate that later as you get bigger, but you don't need to at first subscriptions. That's the cost of all the tools, Salesforce, Adobe, Miro. Marketing, that's going to be the program spend, so like advertising and conference stuff. And this, as you get 
more mature will become like 20 lines. It'll proliferate and then travel, you know what that is. And then office expenses. So just to recap real quick, salaries and benefits, commissions, contractors, professional services, rent, subscriptions, marketing, travel, office expenses, up to like 10 million, you may actually be fine. Uh, 10 million in ARR, just using a somewhat simple pick list like that to make sure you have clean data lineage. And that's easier to go deeper. So people forget that it's it's really hard to go back and get back to that tier one level of expenses or even sales data, which we talked about before. So you want to start with a clean foundation as you progress through the company's life cycle. Third question, how do you make asset allocation decisions by company by stage from Gagan Rana? CFO's job as a company gets older, goes from chief risk officer at the beginning, making sure you have enough cash in the bank. And that never really goes away, but it's just kind of how much time, you know, are you spending on things to a, to a capital allocator. And I don't mean it in the sense of like an investor in the stock market, like you're taking cash and pushing it in and trying to get a return on it. You're trying to take whatever funding you've raised and allocate resources, which is usually in the form of humans in different departments. And I look at a CFO's job as like an investment manager of the company's, you know, bandwidth in a lot of ways, which is tied to money. So it all ties back to the money that you have on the balance sheet. So the asset allocation decisions you're making, I slightly rephrase that to resource allocation decisions because you're resourcing the company to uh, execute on the goals that you set out at the beginning of the year and what you told investors you were going to do. And so... 70% of that is in your headcount expenses that you want to concentrate on. Um, another 20% may be like the tools and stuff that you need to empower those people to go out and actually do the stuff they need. And then there's this 10% that you always have in mind around like the peripheral things that can help people go even faster. As you get even larger as a company and you have enough money to look externally, you start to think about allocation decisions from a build versus buy framework. Like at the beginning, you're building everything because you can't go out and just buy stuff. But as the, as the company gets bigger, approaching 100 million, you start to think about, hey, would it be faster if we just went out and bought something to expedite the product roadmap here? And that's where the CFO takes on more of that externally facing capital allocation or resource allocation you know, hat. But at the beginning, it's really around people and tools to make processes go faster. This lovely listener slash reader hit us with a second question. What's an effective role a CFO plays in sales, contract negotiations, and approvals? This is this is a hitter. Woo! Two-piece hitter for your dome piece. All right. Uh, so the CFO is also, you know, the chief procurement officer in a lot of ways. And it kind of links back to that resource allocation decision, because like I said, there's that 20% that's how do you make people go faster by arming them with tools and stuff. You want to have trust in your peers to go out and choose the tools that they need. Like, I'm not going to go and try to tell the marketing person, like you do need like this vendor name specifically. I'm not there to tell you that. I'm there to tell you, hey, we have this bucket of cash we can allocate towards certain tools, I'm empowering you to make the decision. Let me know if you want help with the negotiation. I've found that uh, companies can get into hot water when they have people negotiating with vendors all the way through to contract and signage, and they don't have a lot of negotiation experience. There are exceptions, like my CPO is excellent at understanding that like, 
whatever cost they give you at the beginning is not the final cost you're going to pay. Like there should at least be probably three volleys back and forth or else you're leaving money on the table. And uh, also understanding the other levers at play. Like as a CFO, I may have asymmetrical information that, you know, we're beating our cash burn plan for the quarter. So I have a little more to play with if I want to pay for a contract annually up front and get a deeper discount. Like the engineering leader isn't going to have that information to use that lever in the negotiation. So CFO can come in and help with that. So after like the tooling decision is made, uh, CFO can help with the actual execution around pricing with the contract. And then approvals, like I think you should empower peers and other department leaders to approve stuff up to a certain limit. So like as a small org, it may be like pretty much nothing or like up to a thousand dollars. And then you make this what I call an approval matrix over time. So you may have heard of like a discounting matrix, which is when you're selling something. You also have an approval matrix on expenses that organizations create. And uh, that'll say like, if you're this level in New York, say like a director and above, you can approve up to 3000. If you're a VP or above, you can approve up to 15,000. And over time, it gets huge. Like I'm sure like AWS, there's like some like first year recruiter who's able to approve like a $2 million budget because they're so big. It's probably not true, but I like to think about it that way. And and that's the type of governance that you end up standing up later so you can go faster. Eventually, you come to a point where like the CFO can't look at literally every negotiation that comes across the desk, but it's kind of a crawl, walk, run. Like I, I still, in my day-to-day, probably have my eye on at least 75% of the contracts that come across. And I'm always available to jump on the phone with the vendor because I know that over time, if we're able to negotiate and set up multi-year deals that help us allocate resources better. It's going to to help the bottom line and free up more cash to invest actually more people within those same departments on behalf of the people I'm negotiating for. So, whoa, what a mailbag. Thanks for joining me today. That was a blast. We're going to get to an excellent podcast here. Have a great week. Oh, good luck closing the books. On Q3, if you are not done with that yet, you are like really behind. My goodness. Get it down to five days. Boom. Welcome to the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm CJ Gustafson here today with Brandon Deere, Chief Strategy Officer at UiPath. Brandon, thanks for joining the show today. Ah, It's great to be here. Thanks, CJ. The more I've dug into the company, it seems like UiPath went global pretty fast. I'm I'm wondering if you reflect back on your experience there was was that on purpose did customers drag you there how did you guys end up as you know a a global company so quickly like most things in business i think it's a you know it's a combination of like good decision making and some luck and timing i i think we had back in 2018 you know some some interesting pipeline or some global accounts that had uh globalized footprints and we you know we had the capacity and, and need to have resources on the ground, you know, large conglomerate companies that might be based somewhere in Europe, but have, you know, field workers, tens of thousands of them all over the world. Like if you really want to be able to service those accounts, you need to have your people where, where they are. But the bigger thing, um, was the actual intent in which we started to hire globally so quickly. And I think in 2018, you know, Daniel, uh, the CEO and I, did have a very clear perspective that, you know, there was a real market opportunity here. We needed to go conquer it and we needed to build that market. Like a lot of people weren't familiar with the terminology RPA. They didn't understand, you know, they've been talking about automation for years, but 
automation back then meant like an ERP or, you know, some sort of end system of record. That's what digital transformation was. It wasn't actually using UI-based automation to go conduct tasks as a digital workforce, as a new concept. And, you know, if you want to go establish yourself as a leader in a new market, I think you need a certain level of audacity and and risk-taking. And that was a big bet for us at the time. You know, we weren't that big a company. I don't remember the exact numbers, you know, I'll call it 30, 40 million of revenue, you know, growing quick, but compared to some of the other, I mean, we had a whole set of, you know, adjacent technologies around us that um, were pervasive in our customers who were many hundreds of thousands of times larger than us, just purely in, in revenue and cash. And so we had to be aggressive uh, in order to capture that mind share. And, and going global, it's it's not easy though. I think a lot of companies stumble out of the blocks when they go to areas that are culturally different, that maybe sell different, price different. Did did you guys stumble at all? Well, there's a lot of things that we that we could have done better for sure. <laughs> we were super aggressive in you know our build cycles, our hiring velocity, our sales tactics. Like we wanted to be number one, and so we were doing everything in our power to move as quickly as possible. Speed was kind of the core tenant of our of our business and the mantra that we sang in 2018. And uh, sometimes in order to have speed, you have to make sacrifices. Um, and I think we learned the hard way. I remember at the time during it all hands, um, you know, I was addressing some of our employees and the analogy that I used at the time was that you know, we were building a rocket ship and rocket ships are great because they're fast. Um, but to run a rocket ship requires rocket fuel and rocket fuel is, um, well, it's really scarce number one. And as a result, it's also super expensive. And so what did that mean is that, you know, in a time where we actually had a decent amount of money to go higher quickly, the biggest limiter for us was our ability to get amazing talent. What we misunderstood at the time was that hiring more people mm-hmm. would just create more growth. You needed to hire great people to drive growth. And we were always, you know, in our history, really thoughtful about, you know, things like cultural fit and bringing in people who would kind of push the boundary of what we were capable of. I think at a point when we maybe started to veer too much towards like, you know, speed at all costs we kind of lowered the bar in terms of the types of, of people that we were bringing in. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's well known that B and C players can, can kill companies and to ensure that you propagate the right culture, you need to be brutally tough with people who aren't holding themselves above water and ruthlessly go and cut, you know, those types of performers out of the organization. But you know, again, we were, we were all about the speed, it's more resources equals more growth. And like, you just need to continually perpetuate that. And so this, this idea, this, this skill set of like cutting out fat or being ruthless with people, like that was not a skill set that I think we as a management team really possessed at that point as an organization, we were getting bigger and bigger and we were accumulating, you know, different types of people, but not all of whom were a great fit for us. And we definitely had to pay the price for that later when we had to, you know, restructure the business a little bit. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. If you're a startup founder or executive running a growing business, you know that as you scale, your systems break down and the cracks start to show. 
If this resonates with you, there are three numbers you need to know. 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind, so you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com metrics. That's netsuite.com metrics to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com metrics. And the first 10 people you hire in any new geography are going to hire the next 100 people. That's very true. And I think what we saw, and there's kind of a lag time between when you make these decisions, you bring a new foreign body into an organization and you kind of realize if they're going to be rejected or not. And I think everyone comes in with the best of intent. I think most people want to give, you know, new employees, new, new team members a chance and opportunity. But what we found was when we went out and we brought in, you know, so many new people so quickly, and they would all bring people from their prior lives, the prior company that they worked at, you know, their former teams, you kind of had this hodgepodge of different cultures that were all just hitting um, what was already a very unique environment. I mean, a startup that was founded in Bucharest, Romania, you know, a place in the country, I think most people in the U.S. where we were largely expanding to, or even Western Europe, had never even really been to, maybe they didn't even know a Romanian person previously. And now you have like something, you know, an entity whose heritage is based out of this place. And it's kind of smashed together with all of these new cultures, largely big American corporate type mindset individuals. It was a tough transition to go through for a lot of people. And, uh, we had to write that after not so much time. And it's interesting that you were going about this change in expanding very quickly globally at around the 30 to 40 or call it sub $50 million mark. Because anecdotally, what I've observed with startups is <clears throat> that's usually when the execs start to hit the end of their network of people that they can pull in. Um, some execs have the most expansive network in the world and they, and they never run out. But I mean, when you start going globally, especially, you know, how many people do you know in China on the ground or in Japan who can hire that initial pod of salespeople around them? Then you're taking bets on people that may be less of a, a proven commodity just because, you know, your network doesn't reach that deep. And candidly, that's exactly where we're making a conscious trade-off. We didn't understand the downstream effects or costs was... We were going out and getting the biggest name people with the biggest networks who had done a lot of international business and had run these massive organizations. Yet, as a company, we weren't really that profile yet. And so that's that's what created a bit of the dissonance between who we were as a company, what our culture was at the time, versus people who we were bringing in. Anytime you're bringing on that many employees so quickly, I mean, it's, it's hard to just keep track to ensure, like, one the quality of the training and the enablement and 
you know, the goal setting process is clear to everyone. You have to be really sound at communicating to employees when you're doing that. Like it should be a well-oiled machine. And like the feedback we got back then was, hey, communication isn't clear. You know, our goals aren't clear. You just hired someone with my same title. I'm based in New York, but they live in London. And uh, we're not really sure how our jobs compare or contrast or if we're duplicative. We didn't have those systems in place. We didn't have things well-scoped. I think it's a common story for a lot of startups. You know, I, I work with dozens of startups. I, I'm you know, actively involved as an advisor and investor in, in, in dozens of them, both personally and through a, a fund that I created called Crew Capital. So, you know, I think these are common things that you hear about founders and, you know, lessons they learned along the way. I think we just did it in a bit of uh, an extreme way. And probably before like that really became an overhyped cycle in, in 2021, we were a few years ahead of that curve. We made the mistakes earlier. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, at that stage, jet fuel, like you said, extremely expensive, but I don't really think that's the scarce resource. It's actually bandwidth. It's how many things you can deal with and prioritize at a time. And when you go international, you're expanding your scope extremely rapidly as an exec team. Very true. And just to switch gears a bit, crew capital, you started a VC arm. I got to say, you're not the first, you know, operator duo to say, you know, how hard could it be to be a VC and, and, and give it a try on your own? I do think, though, that operators give different advice than a traditional VC. So I'm curious, is is there a topic or a theme that you think you're better suited to to help guide companies with because you're on the other side of the table for, you know, the majority of the hours? Well, I've spent most of my time the last five years at UiPath really focused on our go-to-market engines. You know, thinking through the customer journey, how we can effectively sell the things that, you know, we've built, how to price those products, how to ensure that we're dedicating the right sales and our pre-sales motion to get the customer to actually get across the line and realize the value we can drive for them. And then in the post-sales motion, ensure that they're super satisfied so that when we get to the time of renewal, it's a really easy conversation and, you know, we can up-level our, our engagement together, ensuring that our reps have the right incentives um, to go drive the behavior that we think is important for the company and so that they're really happy about, you know, who they're working with and how they're being compensated. So all of these topics are, you know, things that when one of these founders is, is you know, asking me for help or when I'm getting more involved, these are the things that I tend to spend my time focused on is the go-to-market aspects of it. I think Daniel's a really prolific voice in, you know, thinking about how to scale scale engineering talent, multi-development sites, evaluating different types of technologies by which to play with. And he's just such an unbelievable engineer and someone who's seen so much um, at scale across global development sites. And he's, you know, worked with the best of infrastructure and ops and AI engineers that I think it's really hard to to find a, a better sounding board. But more importantly than just me and him, actually, is this network of a few thousand people that we built around that community. And so to the extent that, you know, we're not the best people to talk to, which is often the case, we very quickly have a direct line, someone on speed dial that we can get them in touch with. And very often these are people that We've personally worked with, we've engaged with them in some capacity. Maybe they worked for us, maybe we've partnered with them, maybe they were a customer of ours, maybe we were a customer of theirs. And so it's just a really qualified 
group of people with very shared and wide incentives. And that's actually the genesis for the name crew. It's, it's actually the community element. It's that crew of people that, you know, are, are part of that network that we can refer you to. That's, that's actually how we came up with the naming. I like it. And Daniel, his name has come up a couple of times. I'm, I'm curious what your relationship is like with him and to zoom in on a point of time, really, you were a part of one of the largest IPOs in terms of cash raised alongside Daniel. Are there any war stories leading up to that IPO? Daniel and I, you know, we first met in 2017. Um, we got introduced by, I call him a, a mutual friend now. At the time, he was uh, an, an investor at Pointer Perkins, a guy by now name of Alex Curland. He was uh, really interested in working more closely with Daniel. I was interested in getting out of investing and actually going back to building, albeit at a much smaller stage than at Intuit, where I had been previously to the investing role. I, I wanted to go, you know, take a shot at making a real dent in the world and, you know, building a company from something with very little presence and very little revenue and very few people into something that had the at least the potential to be a lot bigger, even if um, even if it didn't ultimately end up working out. Um, I wanted that opportunity. I wanted to take that swing. And there was just an amazing chemistry there from the first time that we met. And it's kind of weird because, you know, there's a big age difference. A 15-year gap in age, our cultural backgrounds couldn't be more dissimilar. Like, you know, he grew up in communist Romania. You know, I'm from the northern suburbs of Chicago. English is not his first language. English is my only language. So there were just so many of these elements of our background and our understanding of the world that were so very different. And yet on a very personal level, like we got along so well, and it's not that we agreed on so many things, actually. I think the most amazing part of it was that we disagreed on so much, yet we're able to have a really productive conversation. And that's still true today. It's actually what kept us so close is that um, we can very naturally and organically disagree on so many different things and yet come to a place that combines both the facts of the situation so the things that are just you know objectively true and also categorize the things that are like judgments of our own uh, or interpretations of our own and put those on the table together to work towards what ultimately we think becomes a better outcome so it's it, it's interesting it's uh and it's it's grown it's grown over the years. I started as his chief of staff. Ah, okay, yeah. A lot of successful people start doing that. I'm just saying that though because I was a former chief of staff too. Well, there's bias, yeah. So so we can we can admit that there's bias there, then, right? So that's a that's a judgment. <laughs> um, yeah, judgment. but uh, it, it it grew so much over the years from you know kind of chief of staff like very tactical order taker into svp of sales operations and sales technology leading big teams to to being kind of a true business partner to then the last couple of years he put me in the cso role we founded crew together and um we've become really really close friends so it's it's been an amazing ride and uh that that friendship like a good wine i think has only gotten better with time. Nice. And uh, I know we got to get you out of here in a couple minutes. So I'm going to transition to what we call the long ass lightning round. And so what's an example of something that you've screwed up on the job? You know, it could be here at a 
previous company. You know, people tend to think the C-suite is all perfect and polished, but I think we all have, you know, a couple a couple of stories of, of things where we've had a foot fault or two. Well, I, I would say far more than a foot fault, kind of like a, you know, falling flat on your face while running at full speed. But, you know, the individual instance, I, I don't think is as important as like, you know, the themes around what caused those. And I've always found that like my biggest mistakes, and I've had so many ups and downs along my career, right? I mean, I've jumped from operator investor back to operator in the most recent operating role. Like, you know, there's some very big public mistakes that were made along the way that I had my hand in, right? And I don't think you need to go too far down like the Google search history to find where those things are. But I think they always came during a period of time where either had lost track of uh, the actual field, so what was going on with our customers in the day-to-day, what our reps were saying about the deal structures, what our engineers were saying about the hindrances to put forward some of the new features. Anytime you start to lose sense of what's going on at that level, you make hasty mistakes that are just based on a level of intuition that just truly that aren't based in, in real fact or the reality of what's occurring today. Information goes so stale so quickly in our business that if you're not having those conversations with relative frequency, you're making decisions, not just on imperfect data, but completely outdated data. And so I make it a point every day in my schedule, you know, I want to do three things. I want to talk to one customer. I want to understand, you know, what their pain points are, what they're loving, what they're not. I want to talk to one rep for the same reason. And I want to talk to someone who owns one of our product teams. Every single day, those things are built into my calendar naturally. And so that I'm constantly fresh on where the company is. And if you have that level of information, you're that tied into, you know, your product, your field force and your customers, then when the time occurs, you have the discipline and the intellectual capacity to actually say no to people. Cause I think that's the other time I've gotten into really horrible mistakes is when something felt wrong or, you know, I wasn't so sure, but I just, I didn't have the discipline or the ability to say no, because I didn't have the facts. Just because I say no, doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but at least I can come with some really qualified things. In saying no gracefully, I think is a superpower. Staying, saying no gracefully is, is a superpower. Listen, we, we all have an obligation just as humans to be, to be nice to one another, to treat each other with respect. So that's a core principle. That's number one. But you also, if you're going to take up airspace and you're going to provide a really strong opinion, it needs to be based on something that's really strong. And I think a lot of times people base opinions on, well, just that it's just an opinion, but for what, like based on what, saying things with care, saying things with intention and saying it based on a set of sound principles and facts are, are kind of core tenants for me. I like that. I heard you almost had a run-in with Jim Cramer once. Would you mind just leaving the the listeners with that quick story of of that almost run-in? Well, I, yeah. So in uh, 2020, I believe, we were getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but we were starting to think that at some point, maybe potentially in the future, the company could go public. And so we got an invitation from uh, Stacey Cunningham, I believe is her name, uh, who's the president of the New York Stock Exchange, to come down and visit their office and walk around the floor during an active trading day in the middle of the week. And so I went down with our CMO, Bobby Patrick, 
it was kind of, you know, running point on all that stuff. Because the IPO, the IPO at the end of the day is a big marketing. Sure. So he was doing all of his homework and Stacy was personally uh, showing us around the floor. And as we were down there, you know, we saw uh, Jim Kramer actually live on the air um, during one of his sessions. And, you know, I said, wow, this is so cool. One, I'd never been on the floor. Two, you know, Jim Kramer, regardless of what you think of his picks, like he's a, a you know, the stock picks that is in, in his personality, he's a, he is a big personality. Like he's a, you know, a celebrity of sorts. I was a bit starstruck. And I asked Stacy, you know, do you think it would be possible for us to meet him, to say hi? You know, I don't want an autograph <laughs> or anything, but just to say hello. And so, you know, after he finished his stint, Stacy, you know, president of the New York Stock Exchange, walks over to Jim and I see him up, Bobby and I were probably within 10 feet. And I could hear her say, you know, because it's loud down there. So, she, you know, everyone needs to talk with a bit more of an elevated tone. I could hear her say, Jim, I have this amazing AI company called UiPath here. You know, they might be going public in the next couple of years and they'd love to meet you. Would you like to say hello? And he looks up, you know, from his notebook and he says, UiPath, I've never fucking heard of them. And then walked away. <laughs> And so it was a great, it was kind of a great motivator. I think, you know, Bobby, we had a good laugh on that. I mean, we were, we were a little bit humiliated, but um, <laughs> so she came back. She didn't, she didn't know that we had over, overheard him. And she came back and said, oh, sorry, he has another appointment he needs to run to. But Bobby and I heard what he had said. And so we, we used that as, as motivation to go out and to continue to crush the next couple of years and ultimately have a, you know, a successful IPO. And it was, uh, today is just a good story. I still haven't gotten the opportunity to meet him. <laughs> you got to get a plaque of that, put it above the door for motivation. Well, we've definitely yeah. heard of Brandon Deere now and UiPath, and I, uh, I really appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, thanks so much, CJ. Roll the credits, producer Nancy. The Run the Numbers podcast is part of the Turpentine Network of Podcasts. It is produced by Nancy Shu and edited by Justin Golden. Artwork made by some AI thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. Don't forget to give us five stars. I really need this.